so my name is B, and I am being interviewed for a voice and movement practice that I've been facilitating for the past five and a half years, I guess, at this point. And I work between sound and dance. I used to play in a band, singing and making music, and now I'm in kind of hibernation mode from that. I created Womb Core when I was like 22 and was really stepping into a lot of frustration about things that I felt were expected of me, like having a baby or being in a particular kind of sexual romantic relationship that really didn't resonate. And so for me, I was like, I want, I want my womb to be like a creative space. Like I, I don't identify with this womb that I supposedly have. Like I don't have that. Like I have, I have this other thing, and I would like to cultivate friendship and community and creative projects. And so, yeah, I wanted to create this like womb-like space for creativity and creation and allowing people to create movement without necessarily identifying it and being like, that's me, but to see their movement almost like their baby. How can you give birth to your movement or give birth to yourself without immediately identifying with it or judging it? It initially began as a dance class that had contemporary dance kind of techniques and then after that it was voice. And over the years it transformed into a bit more of a flow. I have to give credit to mentors of mine, Isabelle Poirier and Carol Prière, who were both dancers and interpreters for Mary Chouinard, who uh, mentored me quite a lot as well as everyone who's taken my workshop and given me feedback um, I began as a dance teacher and then became a facilitator I think just because of who was coming to my workshop and conversations that were more around social justice and me moving out of a space of feeling like a teacher and more like someone who's holding space for a bunch of different experiences and just trying to give power to everyone in the room to interpret exercises as they will and to be less of an endower of information and quote-unquote teaching people in this linear pathway. In a workshop, I generally get people to lie on the floor first. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you experience something else when you're coming to the workshop where we were voicing in a group more from the beginning. But to lie on the floor and play with controlling the breath and breathing in as deeply as possible and exhaling, emptying out. Mm -hmm. And from there feeling the way that that creates a wave inside of the body, that rise and the fall of the breath and then having the voice move to and through different parts of the body and feeling what that conjures up and how the voice lives 
inside of our body, how different areas of the body harbor different voices. And so I like to create pathways to those areas to maybe experience things like joy or anger outside of a specific event and more abstractly to understand that thing like, oh, joy you know, lives in my sternum, let's just say, in the way that it moves up and down or back and forth, that I can conjure this feeling um, simply by doing this physical action. So the voice and movement duets. They're very important in, in terms of, yeah, having abstract and tone-based conversations. And yeah, I, I love doing these and I love, I love talking about them too because it's, it's just a practice in sensitivity towards another person and how you affect another person and how another person affects you without words. Mm. And yeah, I think it's really connecting with another nervous system through their voice, but also in a really playful way. really encourage people to move through places of pleasure and away from things that are going to be triggering but to maybe visit places of discomfort if that will be helpful like using the voice to go and massage behind the back to take out some of your knots or whatever and using the voice is very much an internal massage it shakes up the water inside of your body and it softens the stiffness or calcified things going on and so i like to just do it on the regular and therefore it's a practice that i feel like i need to just calm my own nervous system and it's just great that it's resonating for other people as well I don't think that I take people's comfort for granted in the sense that there's always something that I could be doing better. Um, something could really be resonating for someone until it doesn't or they need to shift and reorient how they're relating to physical practice. I think that I just try and engage and continue a practice that is evolving as I am evolving, trying to make things accessible in different ways. And for sure, I mean, creating a space for myself as a queer person, as a non-binary person, informs my practice and then who is drawn towards it.
school, so I came to Montreal to go to dance school, but within my first year there, I experienced a lot of homophobia and racism, like people not wanting to be my partner because I was queer, and uh, I mean, being a gay man is really different than being like a queer like woman or AFAB person, I think because gay men are accepted and super wanted, especially, you know, in dance because there are fewer men doing dance to begin with, so it's like competition is higher. And yeah, there's, there's a different kind of policing around sexuality um, for women and non-binary people. I was living in a punk house of like 17 people and then I moved into another punk house and then I moved in by myself and this practice was developed when I was living alone and I was like I can be by myself and I think that I was experiencing a lot of like judgment from different roommates and I think I was looking for something that I wasn't really finding, like the, the punk house that I was living in was super manarchisty and I don't think that I could put to words the fact that I wanted to live in a queer house or that um, my sort of feelings around being anti-state were intertwined with feminism and an intersectional feminism and all of these other things that I just didn't know about in a, like, spoken way but felt more in a bodily way um, and so I felt uh, kind of dampened or whatever being in, in that atmosphere and I think I moved in I was like such a baby queer into this punk house being like I want to be political so I'm gonna move into this house and it was awful <laughs> <laughs> but I learned a lot and so this was me kind of coming back into myself and allowing uh, a practice of being super fucking weird to wake up in the morning and make weird sounds and to crawl around and explore a dance practice and a sounding practice in my own way and to just kind of be back-brained and creature-like. So I began teaching from that space of like wanting to carve out an area where I felt home in my body and in my movement practice. And from there I had drop-in classes that were pay what you can to friends and like kind of people in a broader community who, I don't know, like a lot of queers who I'd seen in different dance classes and things like that. And we'd, we'd like look at each other and recognize each other and be like, hey, are you feeling weird in this space? Are you feeling weird in this space? Yes, but I also really need to be here at the same time. I was brought up with a lot of oppressive ideas about how to perform as a dancer and lateness was very much not welcomed and something that you're shamed for and yeah I just want to make space for 
um, people who are neurodivergent, people who can't make things on time. Whether you have ADHD or whether you have a kid or whether you have super serious depression or whether you're balancing a bunch of different jobs or you're between contracts, like whatever. And if that means that you can't make a workshop, like that just fucking sucks and it's part of a system that I'm really trying to work outside of. And I used to actually be uh, someone who would take it personally if you were late to my workshop, you know? And, and so it wasn't always like that, it's an evolution. And, and I would take it personally, you know, because my teachers before me would take it personally when I was late and so that was my inheritance. And so I'm learning different things. And I know that that's a structure that exists in so many different places. You can go to all kinds of other workshops and have to show up on time and be shamed for that. And so I just want to create another space where that doesn't have to exist. That's something that I think about when facilitating or creating a practice like this, is how to create the kind of system an economy that ideally would be existing on a much broader sense. I try to do different kinds of acknowledgements of the land that we're on that trace a bit of the journey of how, how we got here to acknowledge the violence that our ancestors have done to one another and then we're all here in this room, mm -hmm. that kind of blows my mind and that violence still exists in, you know, more subtle ways. Um, and yeah, it's, it's something that's always on my mind. I think that we need to be doing the work of decolonization all the time. And then I also just like to make my workshops free for those indigenous to Turtle Island and think a lot about what it means like to have people whose land was taken from them um, pay to be anywhere on this land. It really strikes me uh, that that exists and I think that there's so much more change that needs to happen to really give the land back. Mm -hmm. And then I'm here and I'm giving workshops, you know, uh, being a part of this colonial system, it's really, it's really complicated and so I'm just trying to create pockets or spaces where people who live more on the margins of ability or race or the gender spectrum can have access to my work if that is somehow beneficial to them and their lives. I was inspired by my friend Sasha wrote this book called Ephemeral Institutions and that 
title just resonated so deeply with me and and this practice, but also so many different parties that I've been to, so many different pop-up spaces and projects that just don't exist anymore that were created in DIY underground and queer scenes uh, by people who don't necessarily have the resources to buy an actual space mm -hmm. and so there are these very ephemeral traces of culture that has lived and died and people have been able to see the life and death of their projects over the course of years that mm -hmm. just can't afford to exist in the same way as other kinds of monuments and then this practice just somehow feels like it fits into that and it's been going along for five and a half years but who knows it might not still exist in another three or whatever even though there's so many dimensions of this practice that I feel I need that have brought me so much life and connection with other people I'm not sure how this practice is going to keep going. Yeah, at the same time, I think that I, <laughs> I might have a lot of guilt, actually, if I were to step away from it, because it has been a bit of a lifeline for some people mm. who have been taking this practice for, like, five, four, three years or so, and there are new people joining all of the time, and I'm always welcoming new people to come in and try, but I've definitely had multiple people say that they wouldn't know what to do kind of without it or when I'm out of town and not facilitating that they realize how much they rely on this practice to feel grounded and I've thought about you know what it could be like to train someone else to do this if I were to move cities or didn't have the capacity to do it anymore. Because I think that there, there's a responsibility that I have to create this and then people have a kind of dependence on it and yeah, there's a social responsibility that I feel around this practice and I don't think it would be so easy for me to just say I don't feel like doing this anymore. I like to use tone as language as a kind of resistance to colonial ways of speaking and to really just tap into tone and the importance of tone and how much that affects you and other people and so the person voicing will give a bunch of different sounds and I'll ask people to be conscious of the fact that you know they have their own biography and the person embodying has their own biography and they might have a particular idea of how something's going to go down that is completely different to how their partner interprets it 
and to have a practice in in watching that and I ask people to be sensitive so like allowing space for silence mm. to try something out see how that's interpreted what happens and then add more information to kind of see how what you're offering is landing on this person because you might have this idea of like I'm gonna give you this super sweet sound and then you try it out <laughs> and the person is just like cringing. You know, you're getting to know someone. How, how does what you have to offer somebody land on their body? land on me, how I let them influence me or how I influence other people. It's something that I'm thinking about quite consciously all the time and I think it's really important for me to have a play space to reflect on that because I'm a very porous person as well. Mm -hmm. I'm super sensitive and I can be very reactive and emotional and so having a space where that isn't necessarily personal and you're operating really abstractly allows for a different kind of insight into that way of being and navigating the world. So by facilitating playful exercises in partnering for other people, uh, it really helps me out, I think, in just observing other people's level of porousness. we need to fucking move and moving helps us process and that's very much how I came to dance. Like, I, I need to do things and I need to fuck up with my body in order to understand and other people can just read and theorize and somehow organize their thoughts without actually bumping into things physically but I think I need the direct feedback of physical mistake in order to uh, understand my surroundings somehow.